Chapter Two of This Crowded Earth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Greg Marguerite. This Crowded Earth by Robert Block. Chapter Two. Harry Collins, 1998. It took them ten seconds to save Harry from falling, but it took him over ten weeks to regain his balance. In fact, over two months had passed before he could fully realize just what had happened or where he was now. They must have noticed something was wrong with him that morning at the office, because two supervisors and an exec rushed in and caught him just as he was going out the window. And then they had sent him away, sent him here. This is fine, he told Dr. Manshoff. If I'd known how well they treated you, I'd have gone couch-happy years ago. Dr. Manshoff's plump face was impassive, but the little laugh lines deepened around the edges of his eyes. Maybe that's why we take such care not to publicize our recent advances in mental therapy, he said. Everybody would want to get into a treatment center, and then where would we be? Harry nodded, staring past the doctor's shoulder, staring out of the wide window at the broad expanse of rolling countryside beyond. I still don't understand, though, he murmured. How can you possibly manage to maintain an institution like this, with all the space and the luxuries? The inmates seem to lead better lives than the adjusted individuals outside. It's topsy-turvy. Perhaps Dr. Manshoff's fingers formed a pudgy steeple. But then so many things seem to be topsy-turvy nowadays, don't they? Wasn't it the realization of this fact which precipitated your own recent difficulties? Almost precipitated me bodily out of that window, Harry admitted cheerfully. And that's another thing. I was sent here, I suppose, because I'd attempted suicide, gone into shock, temporary amnesia, something like that. Something like that, the doctor echoed, contemplating his steeple. But you didn't give me any treatment, Harry continued. Oh, I was kept under sedation for a while, I realized that, and you and some of the other staff members talked to me. But mainly I just rested in a nice big room and ate nice big meals. So, the steeple's fleshy spire collapsed. So, what I want to know is, when does the real treatment start? When do I go into analysis or chemotherapy and all that? Dr. Manshoff shrugged. Do you think you need those things right now? Harry gazed out at the sunlight beyond the window, half squinting and half frowning. No, come to think of it, I don't believe I do. I feel better now than I have in years. His companion leaned back. Meaning that for years you felt all wrong, because you were constricted, physically, psychically, and emotionally. You were cramped, squeezed in a vice until the pressure became intolerable. But now that pressure has been removed. As a result, you no longer suffer, and there is no need to seek escape in death or denial of identity. This radical change of attitude has been brought about here in just a little more than two months' time, and yet you're asking me when the real treatment begins. I guess I've already had the real treatment then, haven't I? That is correct. Prolonged analysis or drastic therapy is unnecessary. We've merely given you what you seemed to need. I'm very grateful, Harry said, but how can you afford to do it? Dr. Manshoff built another temple to an unknown god. He inspected the architecture critically now as he spoke. Because your problem is a rarity, he said. Rarity? I'd have thought millions of people would be breaking down every month. The naturalists say, the doctor nodded wearily, I know what they say, but let's dismiss rumors and consider facts. Have you ever read any official report stating that the number of cases of mental illness ran into the millions? No, I haven't. For that matter, do you happen to know of anyone who was ever sent to a treatment center such as this? Well, of course, 
everybody goes in to see the medics for regular checkups, and this includes an interview with a psych. But if they're in bad shape, he just puts them on extra tranquilizers. I guess sometimes he reviews their vocational app tests and shifts them over into different jobs in other areas. Dr. Manshoff bowed his head in reverence above the steeple, as if satisfied with the labors he had wrought. That is roughly correct, and I believe, if you search your memory, you won't recall even a mention of a treatment center. This sort of place is virtually extinct nowadays. There are still some institutions for those suffering from functional mental disorders, uh, paresis, senile dementia, congenital abnormalities, but regular checkups and preventative therapy take care of the great majority. We've ceased concentrating on the result of mental illness and learned to attack the causes. It's the old yellow fever problem all over again, you see. Once upon a time, physicians dealt exclusively with treatment of yellow fever patients. Then they shifted their attention to the source of the disease. They went after the mosquitoes, drained the swamps, and the yellow fever problem vanished. That's been our approach in recent years. We've developed social therapy, and so the need for individual therapy has diminished. What were the sources of the tensions producing mental disturbances? Physical and financial security, the threat of war, the aggressive patterns of a competitive society, the unresolved Oedipus situation rooted in the old-style family relationship. These were the swamps where the mosquitoes buzzed and bit. Most of the swamps have been dredged, most of the insects exterminated. Today we're moving into a social situation where nobody goes hungry, nobody is jobless or unprovided for, nobody needs to struggle for status. Vocational apt determines a man's rightful place and function in society, and there's no longer the artificial distinction imposed by race, color, or creed. War is a thing of the past. Best of all, the old-fashioned home life, with all of its unhealthy emotional ties, is being replaced by sensible conditioning when a child reaches school age. The umbilical cord is no longer a permanent leash, a strangler's noose, or a silver-plated lifeline stretching back to the womb. Harry Collins nodded. I suppose only the exceptional cases ever need to go to a treatment center like this. Exactly. But what makes me one of the exceptions? Is it because of the way the folks brought me up in a small town with all the old-fashioned books and everything? Is that why I hated confinement and conformity so much? Is it because of all the years I spent reading? And why? Dr. Manshoff stood up. You tempt me, he said. You tempt me strongly, as you can see. I dearly love a lecture and a captive audience. But right now, the audience must not remain captive. I prescribe an immediate dose of freedom. You mean I'm to leave here? Is that what you want to do? Frankly, no. Not if it means going back to my job. That hasn't been decided upon. We can discuss the problem later, and perhaps we can go into the answers to those questions you just posed. But at the moment, I'd suggest you stay with us, though without the restraint of remaining in your room or in the wards. In other words, I want you to start going outside again. Outside? You'll find several square miles of open country just beyond the doors here. You're at liberty to wander around and enjoy yourself. Plenty of fresh air and sunshine. Come and go as you wish. I've already issued instructions which permit you to keep your own hours. Meals will be available when you desire them. You're very kind. Nonsense. I'm prescribing what you need. And when the time comes, we'll arrange to talk again. You know where to find me. Dr. Manshoff dismantled his steeple and placed a half of the roof in each trouser pocket, and Harry Collins went outdoors. It was wonderful just to be free and alone, like returning to that faraway childhood in Wheaton once again. Harry appreciated every minute of it during the first week of his wandering. But Harry wasn't a child anymore, and after a week he began to wonder 
instead of wander. The grounds around the treatment center were more than spacious. They seemed absolutely endless. No matter how far he walked during the course of a day, Harry never encountered any walls, fences, or artificial boundaries. There was nothing to stay his progress but the natural barriers of high, steeply slanting precipices which seemed to rim all sides of a vast valley. Apparently the center itself was set in the middle of a large canyon, a canyon big enough to contain an airstrip for helicopter landings. The single paved road leading from the main buildings terminated at the strip, and Harry saw helicopters arrive and depart from time to time. Apparently they brought in food and supplies. As for the center itself, it consisted of four large structures, two of which Harry was familiar with. The largest was made up of apartments for individual patients and staffed by nurses and attendants. Harry's own room was here, on the second floor, and from the beginning he'd been allowed to roam around the communal halls below at will. The second building was obviously administrative. Dr. Manshoff's private office was situated therein, and presumably the other staff members operated out of here. The other two buildings were apparently inaccessible, not guarded or policed or even distinguished by signs prohibiting access, but merely locked and unused. At least, Harry had found the doors locked when, out of normal curiosity, he had ventured to approach them. Nor had he ever seen anyone enter or leave the premises. Perhaps these structures were unnecessary under the present circumstances and had been built for future accommodations. Still, Harry couldn't help wondering. And now, on this particular afternoon, he sat on the bank of the little river which ran through the valley, feeling the midsummer sun beating down upon his forehead and staring down at the eddying current with its ripples and reflections. Ripples and reflections. Dr. Manshoff had answered his questions well, yet new questions had arisen. Most people didn't go crazy any more, the doctor had explained, and so there were very few treatment centers such as this. Question. Why were there any at all? A place like this cost a fortune to staff and maintain. In an age where living space and arable acreage was at such a premium, why waste this vast and fertile expanse? And in a society more and more openly committed to the policy of promoting the greatest good for the greatest number, why bother about the fate of an admittedly insignificant group of mentally disturbed patients? Not that Harry resented his situation. In fact, it was almost too good to be true. Question. Was it too good to be true? Why, come to realize that he'd seen less than a dozen other patients during his entire stay here. All of them were male, and all of them apparently were recovering from a condition somewhat similar to his own. At least, He'd recognized the same reticence and diffidence when it came to exchanging more than a perfunctory greeting in an encounter in an outer corridor. At the time he'd accepted their unwillingness to communicate, welcomed and understood it because of his condition, and that in itself wasn't what he questioned now. But why were there so few patients besides himself? Why were they all males, and why weren't they roaming the countryside now the way he was? So many staff members and so few patients, so much room and luxury and freedom and so little use of it, so little apparent purpose to it all. Question. Was there a hidden purpose? Harry stared down into the ripples and reflections and the sun was suddenly intolerably hot. Its glare on the water suddenly blinding and bewildering. He saw his face mirrored on the water's surface and it was not the familiar countenance he knew. The features were bloated, distorted, shimmering and wavering. Maybe it was starting all over again. Maybe he was getting another one of those headaches. Maybe he was going to lose control again. Yes, and maybe he was just imagining things. Sitting here in all this heat wasn't a good idea. Why not take a swim? 
That seemed reasonable enough. In fact, it seemed like a delightful distraction. Harry rose and stripped. He entered the water awkwardly. One didn't dive, not after twenty years of abstinence from the outdoor life. But he found that he could swim, after a fashion. The water was cooling, soothing. A few minutes of immersion and Harry found himself forgetting his speculations. The uneasy feeling had vanished. Now when he stared down into the water he saw his own face reflected, looking just the way it should. And when he stared up he saw her, standing there on the bank. She was tall, slim, and blonde. Very tall, very slim, and very blonde. She was also very desirable. Up until a moment ago Harry had considered swimming a delightful distraction, but now— "'How's the water?' she called. "'Fine.' She nodded, smiling down at him. "'Aren't you coming in?' he asked. "'No.' "'Then what are you doing here?' "'I was looking for you, Harry.' "'You know my name?' She nodded again. "'Dr. Manshoff told me.' "'You mean he sent you here to find me?' "'That's right. But I don't understand. If you're not going swimming, then why—' I mean—' Her smile broadened. "'It's just part of the therapy, Harry.' "'Part of the therapy?' "'That's right. Part,' she giggled. "'Don't you think you'd like to come out of the water now and see what the rest of it might be?' Harry thought so. With mounting enthusiasm he eagerly embraced his treatment, and entered into a state of active cooperation. It was some time before he ventured to comment on the situation. "'Manshoff is a damned good diagnostician,' he murmured. Then he sat up. "'Are you a patient here?' She shook her head. "'Don't ask questions, Harry. Can't you be satisfied with things as they are?' "'You're just what the doctor ordered, all right,' he gazed down at her. "'But don't you even have a name?' "'You can call me Sue.' Thank you." He bent to kiss her, but she avoided him and rose to her feet. Got to go now. So soon? She nodded and moved towards the bushes above the bank. But when will I see you again? Coming swimming tomorrow? Yes. Maybe I can get away for more occupational therapy then. She stooped behind the bushes and Harry saw a flash of white. You are a nurse, aren't you? he muttered. On the staff, I suppose. I should have known. All right, so I am. What's that got to do with it? And I suppose you were telling the truth when you said Manshoff sent you here. This is just part of my therapy, isn't it?" She nodded briefly as she slipped into her uniform. Does that bother you, Harry? He bit his lip. When he spoke his voice was low. Yes, damn it. It does. I mean, I got the idea, at least I was hoping, that this wasn't just a matter of carrying out an assignment on your part. She looked up at him gravely. Who said anything about an assignment, darling? she murmured. I volunteered. And then she was gone. Then she was gone, and then she came back that night in Harry's dreams, and then she was at the river the next day, and it was better than the dreams, better than the day before. Sue told him she had been watching him for weeks now. She had gone to Manshoff and suggested it, and she was very glad, and they had to meet here, out in the open, so as not to complicate the situation or disturb any of the other patients. So Harry naturally asked her about the other patients and the whole general setup, and she said Dr. Manshoff would answer all those questions in due time. But right now, with only an hour or so to spare, was he going to spend it all asking for information? Matters were accordingly adjusted to their mutual satisfaction, and it was on that basis that they continued their almost daily meetings for some time. The next few months were perhaps the happiest Harry had ever known. The whole interval took on a dreamlike quality idealized, romanticized, and yet basically sensual. 
There is probably such a dream buried deep within the psyche of every man, Harry reflected, but to few is it ever given to realize its reality. His early questioning attitude gave way to a mood of mere acceptance and enjoyment. This was the primitive drama, the very essence of the male-female relationship, Adam and Eve in the garden. Why waste time seeking the tree of knowledge? And it wasn't until summer passed that Harry even thought about the serpent. One afternoon, as he sat waiting for Sue on the river bank, he heard a sudden movement in the brush behind him. Darling, he called eagerly. Please, you don't know me that well. The deep masculine voice carried overtones of amusement. Flushing, Harry turned to confront the intruder. He was a short, stocky, middle-aged man whose bristling gray crew-cut almost matched the neutral shades of his gray orderly's uniform. Expecting someone else, were you? the man muttered. Well, I'll get out of your way. That's not necessary. I was really just daydreaming, I guess. I don't know what made me think. Harry felt his flush deepen, and he lowered his eyes and his voice as he tried to improvise some excuse. You're a lousy liar, the man said, stepping forward and seating himself on the bank next to Harry. But it doesn't really matter. I don't think your girlfriend is going to show up today anyway. What do you mean? What do you know about... I mean just what I said, the man told him, and I know everything I need to know about you and about her and about the situation in general. That's why I'm here, Collins. He paused, watching the play of emotions in Harry's eyes. I know what you're thinking right now, the gray-haired man continued. At first you wondered how I knew your name. Then you realized that if I was on the staff in the wards I'd naturally be able to identify the patients. Now it occurs to you that you've never seen me in the wards. So you're speculating as to whether or not I'm working out of the administration offices with that psychiatric no-good Manshoff. But if I were, I wouldn't be calling him names, would I? Which means you're really getting confused, aren't you, Collins? Good. The man chuckled, but there was neither mockery, malice, nor genuine mirth in the sound, and his eyes were sober, intent. Who are you? Harry asked. What are you doing here? The name is Ritchie, Arnold Ritchie. At least, that's the name they know me by around here, and you can call me that. As to what I'm doing, it's a long story. Let's just say that right now I'm here to give you a little advanced therapy. Then Manshoff did send you. The chuckle came again, and Ritchie shook his head. He did not. And if he even suspected I was here, there'd be hell to pay. Then what do you want with me? It isn't a question of what I want. It's a question of what you need, which is, like I said, advanced therapy. The sort that dear old kindly permissive Father Image Manshoff doesn't intend you to get. Harry stood up. What's this all about? Ritchie rose with him, smiling for the first time. I'm glad you asked that question, Collins. It's about time you did, you know. Everything has been so carefully planned to keep you from asking it. But you were beginning to wonder. Just a bit, anyway, weren't you? I don't see what you're driving at. You don't see what anyone is driving at, Collins. You've been blinded by a spectacular display of kindness, misdirected by self-indulgence. I told you, I knew everything I needed to know about you, and I do. Now I'm going to ask you to remember these things for yourself, the things you've avoided considering all this while. I'm going to ask you to remember that you're twenty-eight years old, and that for almost seven years you were an agency man, and a good one. You worked hard, you did a conscientious job, you stayed in line, obeyed the rules, never rebelled. Am I correct in my summary of the situation? Yes, I guess so. So what was your reward for all this unceasing effort and eternal conformity? A one-room apartment and a one-week vacation once a year. Count your blessings, Collins. Am I right? Right. 
Then what happened? Finally you flipped out, didn't you? You tried to take a header out of the window. You chucked your job, chucked your responsibilities, chucked your future, and attempted to chuck yourself away. Am I still right? Yes. Good enough. And now we come to the interesting part of the story. Seven years of being a good little boy got you nothing but the promise of present and future frustration. Seven seconds of madness, of attempted self-destruction, brought you here. And as a reward for bucking the system, the system itself has provided you with a life of luxury and leisure. Full permission to come and go as you please, live in spacious ease, indulge in the gratification of every appetite, free of responsibility or restraint. Is that true? I suppose so. All right. Now let me ask you the question you asked me. What's it all about? Ritchie put his hand on Harry's shoulder. Tell me, Collins, why do you suppose you've received such treatment? As long as you stayed in line, nobody gave a damn for your comfort or welfare. Then, when you committed the cardinal sin of our present-day society, when you rebelled, everything was handed to you on a silver platter. Does that make sense? But it's therapy. Dr. Manshoff said, Look, Collins, millions of people flip every year. Millions more attempt suicide. How many of them end up in a place like this? They don't, though. That's just naturalist propaganda. Dr. Manshoff said, Dr. Manshoff said, I know what he said all right, and you believed him, because you wanted to believe him. You wanted the reassurance he could offer you, the feeling of being unique and important. So you didn't ask him any questions. You didn't ask any questions of yourself, such as why anybody would consider an insignificant little agency man without friends or family or connections worth the trouble of rehabilitating at all, let alone amidst such elaborate and expensive surroundings. Why, men like you are a dime a dozen these days. Vocational apt can push a few buttons and come up with a half a million replacements to take your job. You aren't important to society, Collins. You aren't important to anyone at all besides yourself. And yet you got the red carpet treatment. It's about time somebody yanked that carpet out from under you. What's it all about? Harry blinked. Look here. I don't see why this is any of your business. Besides, to tell the truth, I'm expecting... I know who you're expecting. But I've already told you she won't be here because she's expecting. What? It's high time you learned the facts of life, Collins. Yes, the well-known facts of life. The ones about the birds and the bees and the barefoot boys and blondes, too. Your little friend Sue is going to have a souvenir. I don't believe it. I'm going to ask Dr. Manshoff. Sure you are. You'll ask Manshoff and he'll deny it, and so you'll tell him about me. You'll say you met somebody in the woods today, either a lunatic or a naturalist spy who infiltrated here under false pretenses. And Manshoff will reassure you. He'll reassure you just long enough to get his hands on me. Then he'll take care of both of us. Are you insinuating? Hell no! I'm telling you!" Ritchie put his hand down suddenly and his voice calmed. Ever wonder about those other two buildings on the premises here, Collins? Well, I can tell you about one of them because that's where I work. You might call it an experimental laboratory if you like. Sometime later on I'll describe it to you. But right now it's the other building that's important. The building with the big chimney. That's a kind of incinerator, Collins. A place where the mistakes go up in smoke at night when there's nobody to see. A place where you and I will go up and smoke, if you're fool enough to tell Manshoff about this. You're lying. I wish to God I was, for both our sakes. But I can prove what I'm saying. You can prove it, for yourself. How? Pretend this meeting never occurred. Pretend that you just spent the afternoon here waiting for a girl who never showed up. Then do exactly what you would do under those circumstances. 
Go in to see Dr. Manshoff and ask him where Sue is. Tell him you were worried because she'd promised to meet you and then didn't appear. I can tell you right now what he'll tell you. He'll say that Sue has been transferred to another treatment center, that she knew about it for several weeks but didn't want to upset you with the news of her departure. So she decided to just slip away. And Manshoff will tell you not to be unhappy. It just so happens that he knows of another nurse who has had her eye on you, a very pretty little brunette named Myrna. In fact, if you go down to the river tomorrow, you'll find her waiting for you there. What if I refuse? Richie shrugged. Why should you refuse? It's all fun and games, isn't it? Up to now you haven't asked any questions about what was going on, and it would look very strange if you started at this late date. I strongly advise you to cooperate. If not, everything is likely to, quite literally, go up in smoke." Harry Collins frowned. All right, suppose I do what you say and Manshoff gives me the answers you predict. This still doesn't prove that he'd been lying or that you're telling me the truth. Wouldn't it indicate as much, though? Perhaps. But on the other hand, it could merely mean that you know Sue has been transferred and that Dr. Manshoff intends to turn me over to a substitute. It doesn't necessarily imply anything sinister. In other words, you're insisting on a clincher, is that it? Yes. All right. Richie sighed heavily. You asked for it. He reached into the left-hand upper pocket of the gray uniform and brought out a small, stiff square of glossy paper. What's that? Harry asked. He reached for the paper, but Richie drew his hand back. Look at it over my shoulder, he said. I don't want any fingerprints. Hell of a risky business just smuggling it out of the files. No telling how well they check up on this material. Harry circled behind the smaller man. He squinted down. Hard to read. Sure. It's a photostat. I made it myself this morning. That's my department. Read carefully now. You'll see it's a transcript of the lab report. Susan Pulver. That's her name, isn't it? After due examination and upon completion of preliminary tests, hereby found to be in the second month of pregnancy. Putative father, Harry Collins. That's you. See your name? And here's the rest of the record. Yes, let me see it. What's all this about inoculation series? And who is this Dr. Leffingwell? Harry bent closer, but Richie closed his hand around the photostat and pocketed it again. Never mind that now. I'll tell you later. The important thing is, do you believe me? I believe Sue is pregnant, yes. That's enough. Enough for you to do what I've asked you to do. Go to Manshoff and make inquiries. See what he tells you. Don't make a scene, and for God's sake, don't mention my name. Just confirm my story for yourself. Then I'll give you further details. But when will I see you? Tomorrow afternoon, if you like, right here. You said he'd be sending another girl. Richie nodded. So I did, and so he'll say. I suggest you beg to be excused for the moment. Tell him it will take a while for you to get over the shock of losing Sue this way. I won't be lying, Harry murmured. I know, and I'm sorry. Believe me, I am. Richie sighed again. But you'll just have to trust me from now on. Trust you? when you haven't even explained what this is all about? You've had your shock therapy for today. Come back for another treatment tomorrow. And then Richie was gone, the gray uniform melting away into the gray shadows of the shrubbery above the bank. A short time later, Harry made his own way back to the center in the gathering twilight. The dusk was gray, too. Everything seemed gray now. So was Harry Collins's face when he emerged from his interview with Dr. Manshoff that evening and it was still pallid the next afternoon when he came down to the river bank and waited for Richie to reappear. The little man emerged from the bushes. He stared at Harry's drawn countenance and nodded slowly. 
I was right, eh? he muttered. It looks that way, but I can't understand what's going on. If this isn't just a treatment center, if they're not really interested in my welfare, then what am I doing here? You're taking part in an experiment. This, my friend, is a laboratory, and you are a nice, healthy guinea pig. But that doesn't make sense. I haven't been experimented on. They've let me do as I please. Exactly. And what do guinea pigs excel at? Breeding. You mean this whole thing was rigged up just so that Sue and I would... Please, let's not be so egocentric, shall we? After all, you're not the only male patient in this place. There are a dozen others wandering around loose. Some of them have their favorite caves. Others have discovered little by-paths. But all of them seem to have located ideal trysting places. Whereupon, of course, the volunteer nurses have located them. Are you telling me the same situation exists with each of the others? Isn't it fairly obvious? You've shown no inclination to become friendly with the rest of the patients here, and none of them have made any overtures to you. That's because everyone has his own little secret, his own private arrangement, and so all of you go around fooling everybody else, and all of you are being fooled. I'll give credit to Manshoff and his staff on that point. He certainly mastered the principles of practical psychology. But you talked about breeding. With our present overpopulation problem, why in the world do they deliberately encourage the birth of more children? Very well put. Why in the world, indeed? In order to answer that, you'd better take a good look at the world. Arnold Ritchie seated himself on the grass, pulled out a pipe, and then replaced it hastily. Better not smoke, he murmured. Be awkward if we attracted any attention and were found together. Harry stared at him. You are a naturalist, aren't you? I'm a reporter by profession. Which network? No network. Newszines. There are still a few in print, you know. I know, but I can't afford them. There aren't many left who can, or who even feel the need of reading them. Nevertheless, mavericks like myself still cling to the ancient and honorable practice of the Fourth Estate, one of which is ferreting out the inside story, the news behind the news. Then you're not working for the naturalists? Of course I am. I'm working for them and everybody else who has an interest in learning the truth." Ritchie paused. By the way, you keep using that term as if it were some kind of dirty word. Just what does it mean? What is a naturalist in your book? Why, a radical thinker, of course, an opponent of government policies of progress, one who believes we're running out of living space, using up the last of our natural resources. What do you suppose motivates naturalists, really? Well, they can't stand the pressures of daily living or the prospects of a future when we'll be still more hemmed in. Ritchie nodded. Any more than you could a few months ago when you tried to commit suicide. Wouldn't you say that you were thinking like a naturalist then? Harry grimaced. I suppose so. Don't feel ashamed. You saw the situation clearly, just as the so-called naturalists do, and just as the government does. Only the government can't dare admit it, hence the secrecy behind this project. A hush-hush government plan to stimulate further breeding? I still don't see... Look at the world, Ritchie repeated. Look at it realistically. What's the situation at present? Population close to six billion and rising fast. There was a leveling off period in the sixties and then it started to climb again. No wars, no disease to cut it down, the development of synthetic foods, the use of algae and fungi rules out famine as a limiting factor. Increasing harnessing of atomic power has done away with widespread poverty. So there's no economic deterrent to propagation. Neither church nor state dares set up a legal prohibition. So here we are, at the millennium, 
In place of international tension, we've substituted internal tension. In place of thermonuclear explosion, we have a population explosion. You make it look pretty grim. I'm just talking about today. What happens ten years from now when we hit a population level of ten billion? What happens when we reach twenty billion, fifty billion, a hundred? Don't talk to me about more substitutes, more synthetics, new ways of conserving topsoil. There just isn't going to be room for everyone. Then what's the answer? That's what the government wants to know. Believe me, they've done a lot of searching, most of it's sub rosa. And then along came this man, Leffingwell, with his solution. And that's just what it is, of course, an endocrinological solution for direct injection. Leffingwell? The Dr. Leffingwell whose name was on that photostat? What's he got to do with this? He's boss of the project, Richie said. He's the one who persuaded them to set up a breeding center. You're his guinea pig. But why all the secrecy? That's what I wanted to know. That's why I scurried around, pulled strings to get a lab technician's job here. It wasn't easy, believe me. The whole deal is being kept strictly under wraps until Leffingwell's experiments prove out. They realized right away that it would be fatal to use volunteers for the experiments. They'd be bound to talk. There'd be leaks. And of course they anticipated some awkward results at first, until the technique is refined and perfected. Well, they were right on that score. I've seen some of their failures, Ritchie shuddered. Any volunteer, any military man, government employee, or even a so-called dedicated scientist who broke away would spread enough rumors about what was going on to kill the entire project. That's why they decided to use mental patients for subjects. God knows they had millions to choose from, but they were very particular. You're a rare specimen, Collins. How so? Because you happen to fit all their specifications. You're young, in good physical condition. Unlike 90% of the population, you don't even wear contact lenses, do you? And your aberration was temporary, easily removed by removing you from the tension sources which created it. You have no family ties, no close friends to question your absence. That's why you were chosen, one of the 200. 200? But there's only a dozen others here now. A dozen males, yes. You're forgetting the females. Must be about fifty or sixty in the other building. But if you're talking about someone like Sue, she's a nurse. Richie shook his head. That's what she was told to say. Actually, she's a patient, too. They're all patients, twelve men and sixty women at the moment. Originally about thirty men and a hundred and seventy women. What happened to the others? I told you there were some failures. Many of the women died in childbirth. Some of them survived, but found out about the results. And the results, up until now, haven't been perfect. A few of the men found out, too. Well, they have only one method of dealing with failure here. They dispose of them. I told you about that chimney, didn't I? You mean they killed the offspring? Killed those who found out about them? Richie shrugged. What are they actually doing? Who is this Leffingwell? What's it all about? I think I can answer those questions for you. Harry wheeled at the sound of a familiar voice. Dr. Manshoff beamed down at him from the top of the riverbank. Don't be alarmed, he said. I wasn't following you with any intent to eavesdrop. I was merely concerned about him. His eyes flickered as he directed his gaze past Harry's shoulder, and Harry turned again to look at Arnold Ritchie. The little man was no longer standing, and he was no longer alone. Two attendants now supported him, one on either side, and Ritchie himself sagged against their grip with eyes closed. A hypodermic needle in one attendant's hand indicated the reason for Ritchie's sudden collapse. 
Merely a heavy sedative, Dr. Manshoff murmured. We came prepared in expectation of just such an emergency. He nodded at his companions. Better take him back now, he said. I'll look in on him this evening when he comes out of it. Sorry about all this, Manshoff continued, sitting down next to Harry, as the orderlies lifted Richie's inert form and carried him up the slanting slope. It's entirely my fault. I misjudged my patient. Never should have permitted him such a degree of freedom. Obviously he's not ready for it yet. I do hope he didn't upset you in any way. No, he seemed quite— Harry hesitated, then went on hastily. Logical. Indeed he is, Dr. Manshoff smiled. Paranoid delusions, as they used to call them, can often be rationalized most convincingly. And from what little I heard, he was doing an excellent job, wasn't he? Well, I know. A slight sigh erased the smile. Leffingwell and I are mad scientists conducting biological experiments on human guinea pigs. We've assembled patients for breeding purposes, and the government is secretly subsidizing us. Also, we incinerate our victims, again, with full government permission. All very logical, isn't it? I didn't mean that, Harry told him. It's just that he said that Sue was pregnant and he was hinting at things. Said? Manshoff stood up. Hinted? I'm surprised he didn't go further than that. Just today we discovered he'd been using the office facilities. He had a sort of probationary position, as you may have guessed, helping out the staff and administration to provide tangible proof of his artistic creations. He was writing out official reports and then photostatting them. Apparently he intended to circulate the results as evidence to support his delusions. Look, here's a sample. Dr. Manshoff passed a square of glossy paper to Harry, who scanned it quickly. It was another laboratory report similar to the one Ritchie had shown him, but containing a different set of names. No telling how long this sort of thing has been going on, Manshoff said. He may have made dozens. Naturally, the moment we discovered it, we realized prompt action was necessary. He'll need special attention. But what's wrong with him? It's a long story. He was a reporter at one time. He may have told you that. The death of his wife precipitated a severe trauma and brought him to our attention. Actually, I'm not at liberty to say any more regarding his case. You understand, I'm sure. Then you're telling me that everything he had to say was a product of his imagination? No, don't misunderstand. It would be more correct to state that he merely distorted reality. For example, there is a Dr. Leffingwell on the staff here. He is a diagnostician and has nothing to do with psychotherapy, per se. And he has charge of the hospital ward in Unit 3, the third building you may have noticed behind administration. That's where the nurses maintain residence, of course. Incidentally, when any nurses take on a special assignment, as it were, such as yours, Leffingwell does examine and treat them. There's a new oral contraception technique he's evolved which may be quite efficacious. But I'd hardly call it an example of sinister experimentation under the circumstances, would you?" Harry shook his head. About Ritchie, though, he said, what, what will happen to him? I can't offer any prognosis in view of my recent error in judgment concerning him. It's hard to say how he'll respond to further treatment, but rest assured that I'll do my best for his case. Chances are you'll be seeing him again before very long. Dr. Manshoff glanced at his watch. Shall we go back now, he suggested. Supper will be served soon. The two men toiled up the bank. Harry discovered that the doctor was right about supper. It was being served as he returned to his room. But the predictions concerning Ritchie didn't work out quite as well. It was after supper, indeed quite some hours afterward, while Harry sat at his window and stared sleeplessly out into the night, that he noted the thick, greasy spirals of black smoke rising suddenly from the chimneys of the third unit building. 
and the sight may have prepared him for the failure of Dr. Manshoff's prophecy regarding his disturbed patient. Harry never asked any questions, and no explanations were ever forthcoming. But from that evening onward, nobody ever saw Arnold Ritchie again. End of Chapter 2 of This Crowded Earth by Robert Bloch